SCP-5392 The Voyage of the Tachyon Express Part 1 In most SCP stories, the Foundation and other similar groups often have incredible pieces of technology, sometimes bordering on or are explicitly anomalous. It's very common to read an article and see the Foundation utilizing things like artificial intelligence, black hole generators, faster than light drives, teleportation, and so on, without even batting an eye about it. What would happen, however, if we took all of that away, with the Foundation and similar groups being only slightly ahead of the curve of modern technology, and someone came along with one of these physics-breaking concepts? SCP-5392 is about a situation in which an extremely unlikely technology gets suddenly showcased to the world, and the ramifications of that event, as well as the ramifications on the individual responsible for it. Let's begin. The article begins very simply, with the object class listed only as pending, due to the anomaly being discovered less than an hour ago. The description states that SCP-5392 is a faster-than-light spacecraft currently in Earth's orbit, 900 kilometers above sea level, and research is ongoing. Junior researcher Mason Hedge notes that this just started and is moving very quickly, so he'll update the article with information as it comes in. The first addendum, then, is an audio transcript from the Foundation's site for monitoring anomalies and Foundation assets in outer space, 15 minutes after the anomaly's discovery. The main observation room of the site is buzzing with activity, as Site Director Nate Ferris enters and addresses everyone, stating that at 9.50am, their time, the Heimdall satellite detected an unidentified aerial phenomena traveling 1.2 times the speed of light within their solar system. The satellite was built to detect FTL outside of Earth's atmosphere, but its sensors instead showed an object moving faster than light and originating from the city of Othello, Washington, a city with a population of less than 10,000. The object ended up 900 kilometers above sea level, and they thought that it was an error until they received reports of an explosion near the origination point. They don't know much yet about the origination point, so they have an agent en route. The object itself has settled into an orbit around Earth, and is not in any danger of colliding with any satellites, foundation or otherwise, but they're still waiting on getting imagery of it. As far as the Foundation knows, they're the only ones aware of it so far, but that won't be true for long, and this is considered anomalous by nature, so it falls under Foundation purview. Their objective will almost certainly be to retrieve the object, so they have retrieval units on launch pads beginning emergency launch procedures for when they get more info about the object. If it turns out that the satellite was wrong and the object was not actually going faster than light, they'll just let the various world governments handle it. Imagery of the object is still being processed. Foundation agents embedded within US and Russian space agencies are trying to find out what they know, and the agent in Othello has just arrived at the explosion site. 
Ferris asks if the object is sending any sort of signal anywhere, like if it's being controlled somewhere on Earth, and the communications analyst says that it's emitting a constant 5 GHz radio wave, but nothing is being picked up on the local frequencies in Othello. One of the Foundation web crawlers, however, has just picked up a live stream, claiming to come from the object. They bring it up on the big screen, and it shows a live stream on YouTube of an elderly bearded man, approximately 60 years old, sitting down in what appears to be a spacecraft. There are various consoles in the interior, but the low quality of the stream prevents their labels from being read. The man is wearing a mechanics jumpsuit, with a name tag reading Albert, and the emblem for Maple Auto Repair is shown. The man is in the midst of speaking about how the theoretical maximum speed of this craft is 1.5 times the speed of light, although he didn't exceed 1.25 times the speed of light during launch. He continues by talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, with Ferris asking who exactly he's talking to. The communications analyst responds that he's speaking with the commenters on his livestream, who are asking him questions, or calling him fake, or asking for more evidence. Currently there are 36 viewers, so Ferris tells them to send a priority request to MTF Gamma 5 to prevent anyone but the Foundation from viewing the stream. They also need an engineering team in here to review everything in the video, and they need to figure out how to communicate with the man. On the stream, the man continues by saying that he hopes NASA gets their eyes on this, and he sent them a link to the stream through their publicly available email. He really hopes they pick him up for making this in the future with other engineers, and eventually go to Mars and beyond. He says that they can go to Mars in 12 minutes with this, instead of 12 years, and wipes a tear from his face. He says that he's so happy, and this is the greatest day of his life. A short while later, Ferris sends an email to the O5s updating them on the situation. The engineering team has confirmed that the ship is nothing like any of their traditional chemical engines. It's not a rocket, it's not chemical, or nuclear, or even any known means of anomalous propulsion, and it's even still up in the air whether or not the ship, called the Tachyon Express, is anomalous in nature at all. The pilot has been confirmed to be Albert Maple, a mechanic from Othello described as an enthusiastic hermit by the locals, eager to help them with their cars, and is noted as being extremely chatty and geeky. Local hazmat teams in Othello confirmed no usage of any dangerous chemicals or material typically used to fuel spacecraft, but they did find press brakes, sheet metal, mylar, and other materials and machines used for the construction of spacecraft. An MTF is working on the ground to amnesticize and disseminate misinformation, so the situation is mostly contained there, while Gamma 5 is still working to track down and amnesticize everyone who saw the livestream. They've blocked the livestream to everyone except a few accounts the Foundation has access to, and are spoofing the viewer count so Albert doesn't notice the drop in viewership. In order to stream, Albert had to hijack a nearby commercial telecommunications satellite, and the Foundation has now gained control of it. 
From there, they're working to gain control of the computer he's using to livestream, as well as making sure that no one else can hijack communications from them. Some of the major world governments and space agencies are focusing on the craft, pointing their satellites at it and keeping their missile silos on standby, as well as trying to communicate with the ship. Another MTF has tried to mislead or otherwise sabotage their efforts, but they're spread way too thin, so they're past the point of no return for at least ten countries and five space agencies. The GOC has reached out offering to destroy the vessel, but they're also respecting the Treaty of Anomalous Organizations, which prevents another organization from interfering if one organization responded to an anomalous situation first. The Foundation is returning the gesture by keeping the GOC in the loop, as it's still uncertain on whether or not their offer will be needed. More than likely, they want the FTL technology as much as the Foundation does, so they'll keep the diplomacy going for now. They also need them to keep UN-joined countries off of the Foundation's back. The Foundation is trying to see if they can hijack the spacecraft itself, but based on what Albert has been saying, he has four redundant navigational computers on board, and implied that the livestream computer was separate from any other ship systems. If that's true, they'll have no conventional way of gaining control of the craft, not at the moment at least. Ferris has designated one of his communication analysts, Macaulay, to be the one to speak with Albert, due to him having experience as a hostage negotiator. He'll be posing as a NASA SATCOM operator, and his goal will be to get Albert to land close to somewhere where they can retrieve him. On another note, they received a communique from the US Space Force, stating that they have no business meddling in affairs that aren't anomalous in nature, and that the Foundation taking over a commercial satellite was an egregious error. They're ignoring them for the moment, to let the GOC calm them down, but this is going to be an international free-for-all if they're not careful. Everyone wants their hands on this technology, and Albert is surprisingly not talking about how the FTL drive works, just ranting and talking about sci-fi, future implications, and how annoying it was to set up the software he's using. Ferris guesses that he won't share anything until he gets his wish, a job with NASA. With that, we're given the transcript for the first communication between Albert and Macaulay, under the guise of a NASA SATCOM operator. Albert was contacted prior to this through a Google Voice phone number he had set up for his auto repair business, and given directions to transmit on a secure communications channel for further communication. Macaulay starts by asking him if he has a means of monitoring oxygen and carbon dioxide in his cabin, and Albert remarks on how cool this is, saying that his CO2 and O2 levels are good, with enough filters up here to last for a few days if need be. Macaulay asks if he's experiencing any medical symptoms, such as trouble breathing, headaches, or pain, and Albert says that that's a great question, but he's not having any pain, just seeing flashes of white light, which is normal because radiation can pass through your retina at this altitude, causing the white light. Macaulay cuts him off, saying to stay focused, and asks if he has food and water, as well as a Geiger counter. 
Albert continues to respond by referring to Macaulay as Houston, saying how good it feels to say Houston out loud, and that he has three days worth of rations and water, as well as a Geiger counter. Macaulay then asks how he's disposing of waste, and Albert explains that he got lazy and made a really small airlock compartment that he sits on, which depressurizes and ejects his waste, with sanitary wipes to clean up after. He then asks if they're watching the stream, and Macaulay responds that they're all watching, and that it's amazing what he's accomplished. Everyone at NASA is proud of what he's done, and he gets the entire mission control room to begin applauding, causing Albert to break out in tears for a minute. After he recovers, Macaulay says that they do need to talk about what a surprise this was, as a metal object suddenly appeared in space with no one knowing what it was or who it belonged to. Albert apologizes that he didn't get clearance for the launch, but he's hoping to atone for that with community service, as he winks repeatedly at the camera. Macaulay replies that he thinks the higher-ups were willing to do something along those lines, but asks him what kind of magic he's got running that thing. Albert says that he really wants to tell him, but he hasn't seen a formal job offer letter sent to his email address, so he can't talk specifics yet. Macaulay asks if it's safe, as he's breaking the known laws of physics here, but Albert says that it's perfectly safe, and he basically broke physics once, not twice. He had to do two things first of which was going faster than the speed of light, but even harder than that was returning to a stable speed and orbit. He had to come up with a whole way for a spaceship to hit the brakes while going faster than light, while taking care not to exert stresses that would rip the ship or him apart. Macaulay asks if that's the law he didn't break, so how did he get around the conservation of momentum? Albert says that he didn't, as he had to store all that kinetic energy somewhere, but before he can elaborate he gets distracted by a message on his LinkedIn profile containing a job offer from Jeff Bezos. The salary is more than he's made in his entire life put together, but NASA doesn't have to worry, as he knows what he wants. Macaulay asks him not to respond to Bezos further, and Albert says that if he wanted to sell out, he would have filed an application at the patent office, and he didn't do this just so rich boys like him could deliver Amazon Prime to the moon. Macaulay replies that that's a relief to hear, and asks if that means he created this for everyone to partake and enjoy, not just NASA. Albert says that he needed to see if it worked first, but beyond that, he was going to make his employment with NASA contingent on him making the specs for the propulsion public domain. Everyone should get access to this, as space is too important for one group to have. Macaulay replies that that's going to be a decision for the higher-ups to make, causing Albert to say that he can just make it for them, and he can send the application to the patent office right now. Macaulay tells him that if he does that, virtually every nation on Earth will have access to the blueprints for what he's doing, including ones that are on the list of state sponsors of terror. Albert says that, respectfully, Macaulay just doesn't get it, as this is something to bring people together, 
Macaulay says that they'll just make bombs that kill people faster than light, and while he gets it, other people won't. Albert frowns and says that they've given him a lot to think about, so he'll get back to them, ending the call and the live stream. The GOC Relations Office sends an email over to the Foundation Department of Public Outreach, saying that while they've been extremely cooperative and honoring the anomalous treaty, they feel that the Foundation is not reciprocating. While the transcripts and imagery the Foundation has provided have been great, and they very much appreciate it, they've taken on an unfair burden on their end to keep the US, Russia, and China all under a lid to say nothing of the member countries of the ESA. He can confidently say that they need more, something to give the aforementioned countries so they don't go off on their own and try to ground or destroy the craft. To add to the pressure they're currently facing, various private space companies are in danger of blowing the veil by pressuring politicians or other agencies in order to put more pressure on the GOC to do something drastic. He's had calls from the UN General Secretary, the Chinese Minister of Defense, the head of NORAD, and his bosses have definitely been on the receiving end of this pressure. Jobs are being threatened in a way that has never been done before, which is only more indicative of how drastic and urgent this request is. The biggest thing that can be provided is a path forward, as right now the Tachyon Express has gone dark for a few hours, and the silence is deafening. Waiting for Albert to make a move is not at all a good idea, as it just gives more time for pressure to build, so they need to make a move soon, even if the craft isn't anomalous. Speaking of which, he asks if the Foundation has considered any anomalous means of retrieval. He would like to point out again that destroying the craft may be the safest option, as in the worst case scenario, everyone goes home disappointed, but normalcy will be maintained and no one will be affected negatively by this technology. Regardless, they will not do so without a green light from the Foundation, as this is already a large enough international incident as it is. They've enjoyed the Treaty of Anomalous Organizations too much to throw it at the wall because of a backwoods inventor with a short attention span. The Department of Public Outreach responds by saying that Ferris has informed them that Albert is making contact again, and they'll forward the GOC's message to Ferris for immediate consideration. They sincerely appreciate everything the GOC has done during this situation, and if it wasn't for their continued cooperation, this issue would likely have escalated beyond their control hours ago. They have considered using anomalies to retrieve the spacecraft, but it's unlikely that they'll go through with it. Of the anomalies in their custody that could pull this off, most of them are not trustworthy, and the ones they can coerce or trust enough aren't necessarily reliable. Furthermore, using an anomaly to retrieve the ship while under the eye of so many world governments would be ill-advised. Plus, the possibility of a containment breach is the last thing they need right now. We're then given the transcript for the second communication between Albert and Macaulay, although Albert has still not reactivated his livestream. Macaulay asks him how he's holding up, and Albert says that the previous conversation was a splash of cold water, 
and he's been doing some math. He's been trying to war game this out, and says that they could try and make it so that only certain countries have this technology. He doesn't like it, but it would be mutually assured destruction if they did, and that worked during the Cold War. Then again, all it takes is one regime change and everything's so unreliable. That leaves too much of a chance than he's comfortable with, so he's moving on from that. Macaulay says that they're in the same boat down here, and the higher-ups are trying to come up with a solution that satisfies everyone. He asks Albert how he's feeling, and he replies that he could be better, he just wants to know where it all went wrong. Macaulay tells him that he hasn't done anything wrong, aside from not notifying the authorities. He tells Albert, frankly, that it all boils down to shit happens. He wanted to create something for the world, and he succeeded, but now it's here, and it's nothing like he imagined. After a pause, Albert says that his mind is jumping ahead to what he's going to do now. If he comes down to Earth, whoever gets him or the engine basically has a shiny red button to blow up the world. He doesn't like it, but he didn't build this thing for security. Nuclear bombs have multiple levels of checks and balances to make sure they don't go off accidentally, or if it's ordered by someone that shouldn't have the authority, but he has none of that in here. The only hurdle is calculating trajectories, which his navigational computers can do on their own. This is a proof-of-concept vehicle, a minimum viable product, and he can't stay up here forever. Macaulay responds that he has an idea, and he'll have to run it by some people first, but if he's right, no one will be happy, but he'll get his wish. He'll update Albert when he can. In a subsequent email from Ferris to the O5s and the GOC, he says that an idea has been proposed to him which isn't perfect, but solves a lot of their problems. The UN would have control over any future FTL spaceflight programs, and the Foundation would also get an FTL drive, but would require the express consent and launch codes from the GOC to launch at all. This would essentially mean that the drive designed by Albert, henceforth referred to as the Maple Drive, would become public knowledge, and no one country would oversee it. Rather, the UN would announce that they are creating their own spaceflight program, requiring three of the five senior UN member countries to launch any spacecraft, and multiple trust but verify levels of security. Ferris says that this is a big decision, which he can't make on his own, so he needs to ask that the O5s conduct an emergency vote. In the meantime, the UN Security Council should also have an emergency session, albeit discreetly, to discuss the safeguards that would be made and to come to a decision fast. This takes pressure off of the GOC, advances humanity in a meaningful way, and moves forward to secure an asset which they still don't know is anomalous or not. As far as retrieving the ship, that would be a joint effort by the Foundation and the GOC once they get the governments in line, with the Foundation keeping the ship and the GOC getting custody of Albert. All of this needs to happen extremely fast, as the Tachyon Express only has 68 hours of life support left, and they don't know what Albert will do as that timer gets closer to zero. 
He's rational, but his situation is desperate, and he knows it. The O5s then put the proposal to a vote, settling on cooperating with the GOC to establish the Maple Drive as a controlled technology. The GOC replied the following day, stating that the UN Security Council convened late last night, with there being a lot of yelling and assertions. They eventually agreed that they didn't trust each other enough for individual countries to have their own FTL programs, so the Maple Drive is staying at the UN level. The lobbying and political hammering from countries has lessened drastically now that they have something they can do about it. As for the private sector, they're starting to work with the GOC rather than pressuring them now that the FTL is being handled at the UN level, wanting to discuss contracts. The GOC Director of Relations personally thanks Ferris and his negotiator for suggesting a proposal that has likely saved the jobs of many of his bosses and colleagues. That being said, this is relatively fast-paced for a decision of this magnitude. While they are used to making quick decisions in the interest of security, those decisions usually amount to agreeing that a group of people is bad, and then passing it off to NATO or the fleet allied commander. For other, more longer or involved motions, like if a country on the Security Council is doing something that violates the sovereignty or compromises the security of another, there's a lot more arguing, with a stalemate that can last for weeks in deadlock. Agreeing to multiple oversight committees was an easy decision, but deciding which countries, aside from the main three superpowers, would also have oversight is still ongoing. Furthermore, there was a lot of debate on what to do when a country is caught making their own FTL drive, with everything being thrown around from automatic sanctions, full trade embargoes and tariffs, military retaliation, and so on. There's also the issue of the UN agreeing to funding a space program, but that will come later, as for now they're just focusing on restrictions, security, and mutual oversight. They're also undecided on whether or not the Foundation should have any FTL at all, regardless of GOC oversight. The discussion pretty much came down to two opposing sides. One side believes that the Foundation were the ones that proposed this in the first place, and if it weren't for them, the GOC would have just destroyed the ship. The other side believes that the Foundation already does whatever they want, so keeping this technology from them will give them a reality check, plus the ship may not even be anomalous. The Director of Relations suggests that they speak with Albert and try to buy some more time with his carbon dioxide filters. The UN Council can generally agree on broad strokes quickly, but get lost in the little details. Despite all the setbacks though, the Council almost certainly will come around and agree to a proposition that will please humanity as a whole, and Albert may get his wish in the end. We're given another conversation between Albert and Macaulay, with Albert having started up his livestream again, although it's still not publicly visible. He can be seen floating in zero-g behind his seat, eating a packed sandwich. Macaulay tells him that he's got some good news, informing him that the UN Security Council met last night and have agreed to keep his model for FTL flight and subsequent development of it at the UN. No individual country will have it, 
so it will be as close to an international effort as they can get. Albert's very happy to hear this, saying that it's probably making some people very angry right now. He's still getting messages from SpaceX, Blue Origin, even his old employer Boeing, all congratulating him and offering him exorbitant amounts of money. At least they were last night, there's nothing new this morning as they probably get the message at this point. Macaulay moves on to discussing what would be expected of him when he gets back to Earth, with Albert already having a good idea of it. He'll be speaking with people of all different countries, with interpreters, but first he'll be speaking with bilingual engineers, not those working on the ships themselves, but people on the oversight committees. Albert doesn't really understand what he means by oversight committees, so Macaulay explains that the UN will be building and launching the ships, but every country wants to make sure that the engines are not being built or launched in a way that's going to compromise the security of their nation. Albert says that he's trying to focus on what Macaulay is saying, but it sounds like something he can sort out once he gets back home, and asks if they can talk about something else. It occurred to him that all of these nations and governments and agencies are scared enough at this point that they're working together, but why has he only been talking with Macaulay, and not even with the head of SATCOM or the director of NASA? Macaulay explains that talking with people is sort of his job, as he talks with people from other groups in NASA or maybe in the FAA or other similar agencies to get information and relay it to his bosses so they can all make informed decisions. Albert understands, so Macaulay moves on to say that the downside to all of this diplomacy going on is that everyone is arguing right now, and if Albert comes back down while they're arguing, it may backfire. Albert understands that as well, so Macaulay is going to give him some instructions to clean off his dirty CO2 filters, and he may have to start rationing his food and water supply for a bit. Macaulay is then interrupted by Ferris, and after a few seconds, he tells Albert to listen to him very closely, as someone has just launched a missile heading on an intercept course towards the Tachyon Express. Albert begins to panic, but Macaulay tells him that if he panics, he dies, so they need to work to solve this. Albert begins to slow his breathing, as Macaulay tells him he has two minutes and five seconds until impact. He begins looking around his cabin, saying that he's looking for a small green notebook, containing a bunch of information he needs to input trajectory. Macaulay asks if he's going to use the drive again, and Albert just raises his voice and asks if he's going to help him look or not. Spotting it on the livestream, Macaulay points it out, and Albert begins to frantically flip through it while moving over to the navigational controls. He rapidly types into a keyboard while muttering to himself, cutting off Macaulay when he tries to say something. The proximity alarm in his ship goes off, causing him to get up to turn it off, before going back into the notebook and continuing to type. Macaulay tells him he has 60 seconds till impact, as Albert fixes a mistake he made in his input, saying how much he wishes he had brought a mouse along. He then says that he's good on navigation, with 40 seconds left, but he has to run the startup checks, as they're important. He then says that he doesn't need his headset right now, tossing it aside, as Macaulay shouts for him to put it back on. 
Back in Mission Control, the room is looking at two large screens, one showing Albert on his live stream referencing a notebook and operating some controls, while the other shows a missile on the path to intercept the ship. Ferris tells Macaulay to stop shouting for Albert, as he can't hear him and he needs to work. An MTF has launched an interceptor to take care of the missile, but it's not going to make it, with 30 seconds until impact. A satellite operator then says that the projectile's not on an intercept course, as it's pathing above the ship. Suddenly a new contact appears, approaching at Mach 11, and they receive a message from the GOC saying that the new contact is theirs. They're attempting to intercept the missile with a railgun, and a few seconds later, the projectile hits the missile. The resulting explosion knocks Albert off of his chair and sends him face first into the cabin ceiling. He falls out of sight of the camera, as imaging shows the ship is now spinning hard, knocked out of orbit. Albert is likely unconscious due to the force of the spin, as Ferris asks what the trajectory of the ship looks like. It's too early to make any definitive calls, but it looks to be heading towards the North Pole. Ferris requests an emergency scramble of MTF Delta-14, trained to handle anomalies in sub-zero environments, and tells them to coordinate with the GOC on retrieval. On the livestream, Albert's bloody hand appears, grabbing the armrest of the chair. He pulls himself up against the direction of rotational gravity, and he's suffering from a severe nosebleed, with the amplified gravity causing it to be a thick red line going down his face, beard, and jumpsuit. The entire mission control room watches as he loops his left arm around the armrest, reaching for the controls with his right arm. He's seen visibly straining to reach them, but fails to grab the controls twice as more blood starts to eject from his nose. His eyes appear to be bloodshot and blinking rapidly, but he tries a third time, successfully reaching the console, before losing his grip and falling out of the chair once again, out of view. The satellite operator informs Ferris that the Sentinel-2 satellite is picking up elevated heat readings from the ship, and they bring up the image of the ship itself on screen. The rear of the ship is seen glowing a bright yellow for less than a second before the entire ship disappears out of sight. Albert had succeeded in activating his drive, so they're going to have to find out where he went. Ferris tells the team to check Heimdall for FTL events, cancel the MTF request, inform the GOC, and find out where the missile came from. He then tells Macaulay to lock the doors. Getting the entire world to work together on anything is no small task, especially when it doesn't involve something like global annihilation. Tempting every country on Earth with the idea of perhaps the greatest technological innovation to ever occur is almost surely going to lead to some conflict. The Foundation wants to keep this thing contained, the GOC want it destroyed, the UN are going to endlessly bicker to make sure as many regulations and procedures are in place as possible, while most countries want the tech for themselves to become an unparalleled superpower. Trapped in the middle of all this is the affable Albert Maple, and while we still have no idea how he managed to come up with this technology on his own, and how anomalous it actually is, he seems to be an alright guy. 
Obviously, it's pretty unlikely that this story ends with everyone happy, but we'll have to see what exactly happens with Albert and the Maple Drive in Part 2. SCP-5392 The Voyage of the Tachyon Express Part 2 Space is, very famously, said to be the final frontier, an expanse filled with strange new worlds, new life, and new civilizations where no one has gone before. In the timeline taking place within SCP-5392, no one, not even the SCP Foundation, has found a way to quickly traverse the great vastness of space. That is, until a simple, eccentric man named Albert Maple came along, and managed to launch himself into space in his own faster-than-light spaceship. Now, all of the major organizations and governments of the world have their eyes set on Albert, and more importantly, his technology, with the SCP Foundation trying to keep everything together and the tech out of anyone else's hands. With that, we continue on through the second half of the article, as Albert thinks about the best course of action for both himself and the Tachyon Express. We pick up where we left off, just after someone launched a missile at the Tachyon Express. The GOC intercepted it, and the resulting explosion injured Albert and caused him to fire up his ship and disappear. Albert and the ship were quickly found afterwards, as he went back to his original destination in Earth's orbit, although the satellite he had been using to communicate was now too far away to use. Instead, a Foundation satellite was redirected for a rendezvous course. Later that day, the Foundation's Department of Public Outreach sent an email to the O5's, Site-26 Director Nate Ferris, and the GOC Relations Office, updating everyone on the situation. It's been confirmed now that the missile launched against the Tachyon Express was launched from an ICBM missile silo located in Russia. The silo was deactivated as part of a nuclear arms reduction treaty in the early 2000s, and was bought by a company claiming to be in the business of agriculture and livestock. The missile used is called a volleyball missile, as it's designed to detonate above satellites, knocking them downwards out of orbit instead of outright destroying them. Test rockets for these missiles were made, but were abandoned during the height of the Cold War for being impractical. Whoever launched the missile at the Tachyon Express clearly intended to salvage it rather than destroy it. The UN Security Council has thus turned against Russia, claiming that they were trying to spike the proceedings and violating the Arms Reduction Treaty. The missile itself tripped NORAD, causing the DEFCON level to rise, and until the US can trust Russia again, all of the talks regarding the Maple Drive are being put on hold. Russia is stating that they shot it down as it was a danger to the security of Russia's assets in space, but they're not explaining as to why a previously decommissioned silo was active. In short, the security talks are on complete hold until this all gets sorted out, starting with finding some leads as to the identity of this agriculture and livestock company. 
We're then provided a transcript of a phone call between the head of the Foundation's Department of Public Outreach, Catherine Long, and the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister. The Foreign Minister states that he's contacting the Foundation on behalf of the Russian Federation with an offer, proposing that the Foundation send in a qualified team into the missile silo to investigate the recent launch. He says that the government was not responsible for launching the missile, they just told that to the Security Council in order to save face. When they sent their own forces into the silo, they came out screaming and were a danger to themselves and other military personnel. It seems that they were affected by an anomalous force, and there was some internal gunfighting. They cannot contact the GOC for this, as they report to the UN, and they're trying to keep things under wraps. Catherine asks why the Foundation would go behind the GOC's back for this when they've been an ally this entire time. The Foreign Minister says that they wouldn't be going behind their back, just providing the GOC some deniability in the matter, which they would be grateful for. In the end, the Foundation agreed that this was their best course of action in order to gain some info about who launched the missile. So MTF Zeta-9, the Mole Rats, were sent in to investigate. Seven agents were sent in, encountering their first hazard about five minutes after going underground. The object presumably causes psychosis, paranoia, and violent tendencies, but they neutralized it by covering it up with the spray paint they used to mark passages. They then bagged it, along with the other hazards they found. Further exploration of the silo was mostly uneventful, although they did see signs of recent activity. The only evidence they were able to acquire was a metal trash can that had its contents set on fire. They managed to pull some scraps out of the ashes, which revealed two things about the culprits. One, they spoke English, and two, they referred to the Tachyon Express as De Ciro Catalog Number SC67546782111, a cataloging system utilized by the Chaos Insurgency. Around four hours after Albert had jumped a second time, a Foundation satellite made a connection, and Macaulay made contact with Albert once again. Macaulay asks if he's injured, as he didn't look great on the livestream before it cut out. Albert says that he is, but wonders why he's not dead. Macaulay tells him that a missile was launched by persons currently unknown, and the reason it didn't hit him is because the American government shot it down with a railgun, deciding not to mention the GOC's existence. Albert stopped his nosebleed, but he dislocated his left shoulder, as that was the only reason he was able to reach the controls and engage the drive. He's got muscles all over that hurt from either bruising or he pulled them when he was trying to save the ship. Macaulay tells him that it's good that he's still alive, and he's going to have their doctor walk him through some self-treatment for everything. Albert, however, expresses his concern that he's not going to be able to come home, despite Macaulay assuring him that the world governments were having really good talks, with politicians moving fast to get on the same page about how to help him out. Albert, however, says that the second he touches ground, he's going to get grabbed, 
tortured or just killed and never seen again. The ship, if it ever comes down, is going to be pulled apart and studied for ways of how to turn it into something that he wanted to avoid. He tells Macaulay that he just wanted to matter. He just wanted to unite the world, maybe achieve world peace, bring us closer to realizing our proverbial world is bigger than our actual world, and maybe be satisfied with himself. He starts to get angry and says that instead he has small-minded people trying to blow him up and kill him, or get him to sell out, or tell him he matters when it's all bullshit. He then starts to cry, and says that this is bigger than them, this is bigger than all of us. This is the only thing he could do to change everything, to prevent stupid things from tearing us apart. He just wanted to make the world better. Macaulay mentions that Albert would fix people's cars for free when they were in tight spots, so that has to mean something. Albert, however, says that that doesn't mean anything. They would have gotten their cars fixed no matter what, the only difference being how much they paid in money, and money's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything in a few years when it's all inflated, or in a few billion years when the world decays, and it barely means anything now. This was supposed to start something that lasted, to kick us off into expansion and figuring out what's out there. He then remarks that he sounds like a complete idiot, and like an episode of Star Trek. When he started this whole project, he said to himself that he was going to prove nihilists wrong. They always say that the world's going to end. Nothing we do matters, people get cancer, why would I bring kids into this world, and so on. Albert decided he wanted to give people hope, wanted people to wonder again. When he was a kid, everyone was full of curiosity during the Apollo missions and wanting to learn about what was out there and what was going to happen next, but now that's all gone. Now it's all about making money and hurting people. Albert is crying profusely at this point, but he continues. He says that he wanted to do something that would bring people hope, and wanted to do something before he died. He wanted to matter in the time he had left, as he's scared that he'll die, and the universe will just skip him by, and his life won't mean anything. He doesn't care if people never learn his name, and he's not afraid of the act of dying itself, He's just afraid of being inconsequential. After a brief pause, Macaulay takes a turn to speak, telling Albert that he used to be a police negotiator, handling hostage situations, and that's why they picked him to talk to him. Albert remarks on what a career change that was, and Macaulay says that it was, but he asked for the change, as his old job was very stressful although he did get to help people. He says that his last negotiation before he left involved an irate and violent man and some injured kids. They had to get in there quickly to provide medical assistance, but there was no talking the man down, so he had to do something that he always managed to avoid before. He had to convince the man to go to a window so that their sniper could get a shot on him. The decision to do that was made by his superiors, but 
he can't say that he had a better alternative. A week later, in an attempt to get him to stay, his captain came to his desk and showed him a card that one of the kids had made. It said, thanks for saving us, and had a picture of the little girl in the hospital bed smiling and playing with a nurse. Macaulay tells Albert that he may not have saved everyone, but he mattered to that girl and the other kids. His point is that what matters is relative, and while his attempt to matter on a large scale isn't invalid, humans have limits. There's a lot to both of their situations that they couldn't really control. Albert chuckles and mentions a quote from Star Trek that he believes goes well here, that it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose, as that is not failure, but life. Afterwards, they managed to connect Albert's computer to the satellite's Wi-Fi, bringing the live stream back online. A follow-up medical examination by a doctor allowed for him to relocate his arm, and while no other serious injuries were found, the doctor noted that he was in serious danger of a mental breakdown. The doctor stated that if Albert was a Foundation employee, he would have him assigned to safe class duty and weekly therapy for mental recovery, and recommends that he keeps his camera on at all times for further visual review. In an email from the GOC Relations Office to the Foundation, the Director of Relations notes that they saw a helicopter carrying a small team entering and leaving the launch silo area and to make matters worse, the Russian government let them in. The helicopter in question then returned to a Foundation-controlled airfield. Giving each other the runaround doesn't really bother him, as they both have done it to each other's organizations plenty of times, but what does concern him is that the GOC would be left out of something so public. That silo was being watched by multiple countries, so why does the Foundation get to go in? Until he gets their side of the story, he'll assume that they had their reasons, but he'll need to see all of the documentation concerning that excursion in order to keep the international community at bay. Russia maintains that they launched the missile themselves, but no one believes it. The worst part is that other countries are being put in a position where they have to assume that Russia shot it down for hostile reasons, meaning that a war is brewing. Alliances are being drawn between who is siding with Russia and who is not. Additionally, the US is now considering shooting down the Tachyon Express in order to deny Russia the technology, while China isn't tipping their hand as to what they're doing although they aren't the type to hold their cards for too long. The GOC's position is being weakened due to recurring questions about whether or not the craft is actually anomalous, and he's not sure how long they can keep them from acting on their own. Another issue that has come up from all of this is that Albert has the ability to maintain orbit indefinitely, and can right the ship with under two minutes notice. This makes destroying the ship with conventional means exceedingly difficult, let alone retrieval and salvage. Waiting for Albert to slowly suffocate when his filters run out won't work for a couple of reasons, as it's likely that someone will make a move before then. 
and then it will be a free-for-all to see who can salvage the ship first. The director of relations finishes by saying that a path forward isn't going to be enough, and negotiations aren't enough. The temperature in the room is too high, and the first step is getting nations to trust each other again. Catherine Long responds, saying that she's been given permission to disclose what happened and apologizes for the runaround. She explains that Russia didn't launch the missile, and they offered to let the Foundation clear it out because they tried and lost some soldiers. They wanted the Foundation to keep it quiet to preserve their standing, but now there's no reason to keep it quiet anymore. She recommends that if he does bring this to the Security Council that he say that the info was covertly acquired from the Foundation rather than they gave it to him. Not because they want to preserve a relationship with the Russian government, but just because it would sound more legitimate, and she's prepared to have a fake argument with him about his egregious acts of espionage in front of them if need be. We're then given another call between Albert and Macaulay, as Albert's working on his navigational computers. Macaulay asks him if he's planning a course, but Albert says that he's plotting a destination, several of them. He's not planning on going anywhere, but when they told him about the missile, he had only two minutes, with his proximity alarm going off only 90 seconds before it would hit. He's essentially creating an array of coordinates to travel to in case he needs to get out of the way again. Macaulay asks if he's creating an escape plan, but he says it's more of a plan to keep dodging than anything else. He thought about rigging it directly to the proximity alarm to jump immediately, but there could be too many false positives, so he'll just confirm a threat on his end and jump to the next coordinates if need be. It's also the only thing he can think to do up there other than continue to check his equipment over and over, as he likes having something to work on. Macaulay tells him that he hopes he won't have to dodge a missile again, but if he does, they can have a satellite in the next set of coordinates ready so there's no downtime in communications. He just needs to know where the next set is. Albert, however, doesn't want to tell him. Because as nice as that would be, if NASA is listening to this, then so is the American government. They could send a missile to provoke him to use the drive, then have a missile ready at the next set of coordinates. Even if the American military isn't listening to this, someone else may be, and he's not going to tip his hand like that. Macaulay assures him that the frequency is encrypted, but Albert says he won't convince him to change his mind on this. It costs him next to nothing to have this contingency in place, and if no one knows where he's going next, no one can anticipate it. He trusts Macaulay, but he doesn't need to tell him. Macaulay is told by Ferris to not push the issue, so they move on. Albert says that part of what he wanted to do was spark a new age of invention. When they colonize planets, they're going to need to face a whole new set of problems for each planet. One such problem that he thought of was, how are Muslims going to point their prayer rugs at Mecca from Mars? 
eventually they're going to get Muslims on Mars, noting how fun that is to say due to alliteration, but they're going to need some sort of mechanism that can point them to Mecca. Macaulay responds that they would need a device to point to it like a high-gain antenna and a satellite in orbit around Mars to facilitate connection, and the antenna would need to be in a fixed position. Albert replies that Macaulay thought of that because he works at NASA, and that's how NASA would solve the problem. Maybe the Iranians or some other country would genetically breed a flower that would point at Earth, like how sunflowers point at the sun. He notes that that would be cool for another reason, as it would act as a crude compass to get back to Earth, but then realizes that you wouldn't be able to get an accurate bearing from a bastardized sunflower. Or maybe someone will come up with some other solution that's just as amazing, and he would have loved to see what they come up with. Macaulay then tells him that half of his colleagues in Mission Control are now muttering Muslims on Mars to themselves, causing Albert to laugh, and say that if they were praying quietly, they would be muttering Muslims on Mars. They both laugh and the transcript ends, although it's noted by Macaulay afterwards that Albert said he would have loved to see the solution for Islamic prayer on Mars, suggesting that he won't be around. Next we're given a transcript of a phone call between Catherine Long and the US Secretary of State, taking place eight hours after Albert evaded the missile. The Secretary of State says that this is regarding the American citizen in orbit, but she says that they have nothing to discuss. This changes when he says that her daughter would disagree, and he puts her young daughter on the phone, who's excited to be in a limousine. Catherine asks her some questions to confirm her identity, her favorite amusement park and favorite ride, and then tells her to give the phone back to the man. She tells him that he must be really desperate if he's threatening children, but he says that he's not threatening anybody. Local police got a tip that her residence was being used for storing narcotics and firearms, and sure enough, they were found at the house, as well as Catherine's daughter. He has the pleasure of escorting her to the social services office. They also found that several of her researchers appeared to have ties to a suspicious organization, which itself has ties to terror groups and other organized crimes. Under the Patriot Act, they have the right to arrest them as they see fit. It also appears that several Foundation-owned companies have ties to these groups, so they're seizing their assets as they speak. They're not threatening anyone, they're just protecting their country. As for what can be done about it, they've sent over instructions to her office on how to turn communications with Albert over to them. It's in their best interest to make sure that their American citizen is in good health after that spin he had. Once this is all over, she can take her daughter to that ferris wheel knowing that she did the right thing. Catherine tries to argue that the Foundation will not answer to them, but he replies that she shouldn't make a threat she isn't willing to follow through on. The call ends with Catherine's daughter saying goodbye, and she'll see her when she gets home. Later, in an email to the Foundation from the GOC, 
The director of relations says that he's sorry to hear about Catherine's daughter and had no idea that the Americans would do this. Unfortunately, no one cares about the missile anymore, or even that it wasn't from Russia. All it proved was that Russia was lying, which everyone already knew anyways. The fact that the missile came from someone other than a world government is only making them scramble more, and it doesn't help that the Americans are already jumping the gun and attacking Foundation staff, which means that the Foundation is now a target of other countries following their example. The Secretary General has ordered the GOC to stand down from the matter, saying that they shouldn't have gotten involved in the first place because the ship isn't even anomalous. The Director of Relations believes that that doesn't matter, but has been told to cease contact with the Foundation regardless. He ends by giving Catherine the address of the office her daughter is being held at, and apologizes for not being able to do more. The next addendum is an email from the O5 Council to all Foundation site directors, informing them that all Foundation sites are to be put on high alert for external threats due to the events regarding SCP-5392. With the exception of those containing and providing proper security clearance, no other persons are allowed on site, and lethal force is authorized to terminate intruders that breach site perimeters. Foundation staff are to stay on site and make arrangements to remain there until further notice, with contact between family members not on site prohibited, as this gives an opportunity for extortion by any nation that wishes to gain an asset on any site. It's unlikely that any nation will invade any Foundation site directly, as the on-site nuclear warheads, in combination with the dangerous anomalies held in containment, pose a sizable deterrent. That being said, the Council is seeing military action in strategic positions around some Foundation sites. While this varies from country to country, they have reason to also believe that the military personnel engaged in this manner are being told that there is a hostile group at these sites, but are being told to stand by for more information. A number of potential solutions to the situation have been considered, and further proposals are to be sent to the O5 General Secretary and Site 26 Director Ferris. The first proposal was to simply shoot down the Tachyon Express to prevent further escalation, but Albert has created a system to avoid being destroyed, and any attempt to shoot down the ship may be intercepted by another party. Second was to direct Albert to an exoplanet to live in exile, but there are insufficient supplies on board to survive the journey to the nearest viable exoplanet, even at its top speed. Third, to send a supply mission to the ship to buy more time, but this would likely be shot down. The Tachyon Express also doesn't have any reliable docking system with no airlocking system to keep the cabin pressurized if the access hatch is opened. The fourth proposal was to direct Albert to land near a Foundation site for quick retrieval, but the increased military presence near Foundation sites would hamper this, and the early warning systems for nuclear launches that various governments have, which detected the ship in orbit, may be able to track the location on the ground. 
fifth was to send a lethal cognito hazard to simply kill Albert in orbit, followed by shooting the ship down. But the wreckage of the ship may land in a country which can reverse engineer the technology, and they want to keep the tech contained. Seventh was to use SCP-738, a set of anomalies that essentially allows a person to make a deal with a devil in order to teleport the ship into Foundation custody, effectively undetectable by any radar or conventional systems. This was also rejected, as using any anomaly to try and contain the ship could backfire easily, and with 738 specifically, the price it would ask would be much too high, and they don't have time to negotiate. Finally, a proposal was made to reach out to some of the Foundation's allies in other groups of interest for assistance, but this was also rejected, as the GOC has stepped away from the issue, and they can't guarantee that other groups would not abuse the ship's technology for their own purposes, or letting other powers have it. Macaulay gets back on the phone with Albert, with Albert asking if there's a plan by now for what's going to happen with him and the ship. Macaulay says that they're still working on it, but they can't lose hope. Albert, however, doesn't want to hear it, as hope is something one person may have, but a group or groups of people don't. He's guessing that diplomacy isn't doing so well right now, after that missile launch, with everyone trying to grab whatever they can to make sure that no one else can use him or his ship against them. It's not even about using faster-than-light tech anymore, it's about denying it to other people. There's no way that if he lands on Earth again, the nation that finds him is going to want to use his knowledge to satisfy their wonder. They'll just make sure he doesn't get to make it for anyone else, suggesting that he'll be promptly killed. Macaulay tries to reassure him that it's not as bad as he thinks, and he knows that Albert's scared, but Albert denies being scared anymore. Instead, he's just tired, and wants this all to be done. He doesn't want to have to worry about whether or not he's going to be forced to make weapons for a military, or worry about his pre-flight checks every hour, or worry about how much he's hurting the world rather than helping it right now, or what will happen to his ship when it comes back down to Earth. The reason he has no hope is because there's nothing he can do about his situation, just stuck in a box with no air holes, and it's only a matter of time before he suffocates. Hope is something that he has to give himself, but he's dependent right now on a Hail Mary that somehow the nations of the world are going to share and play nice. Macaulay then asks him if there's anything he wants to say to the world, if he wants to address the nations and governments of the world. It would give him something to do, and could reignite diplomacy between the nations. He's the creator of this new technology, so imagine he's like the first caveman that discovered how to make fire, and has to tell all the other cavemen that it's okay to come closer. Albert isn't really sure that they'd listen to him, but Macaulay is convinced that they would, as he built the Maple Drive, he's the first person to go into space on his own, and he's the first person to dodge enemy fire in a spaceship. 
he tells him to channel his inner Captain Picard and bring back the wonder. Albert appreciates that Macaulay is appealing to his love of Star Trek, but he doesn't know how to speak to people. He's great at figuring out problems or explaining problems like as a mechanic, but he's more Geordi LaForge, not Jean-Luc Picard. He asks Macaulay if he'll help him write his speech, which he of course agrees to, so Albert begins jotting down some talking points. The proposal to allow Albert to speak directly with the leaders of the world's governments is taken directly to the O5 Council, and in a shockingly unanimous decision, they agree. Catherine sends out a memo to any of the governments that had been trying to intimidate the Foundation through force, telling them that the creator of the spaceship wishes to speak with them, and if they wish to receive the transmission, they will cease hostile activity. Afterwards, most of the addressed nations didn't withdraw their forces from around Foundation sites, but they did cease to add more forces. After Albert and Macaulay finished writing up the speech, the Foundation sent out the link to his livestream to all of the governments that had agreed to halt further aggression against the Foundation. Albert is seen with a cleaned up jumpsuit on, and is given the green light to begin from Macaulay once all of the intended countries have joined the stream. Okay, is that everyone? Alright, I'll take it from here. Hi everyone, my name is Albert. I'm the inventor, pilot, engineer, and you know what? I'm the captain. I'm Captain Maple of the starship Tachyon Express. It's my understanding that there's a lot of people hurting on Earth because of what I've done and that I've opened Pandora's box here. I get it. This technology is scary, and I can't blame people for being scared if they think everyone they love could die. I just want to say, I didn't build this to be a weapon. I built this because I wanted humanity to explore and see what was out there in the solar system and beyond. The Maple Drive, as I understand it's been called, is a means of getting to there from here. Well, we can do that, but we can only do it if we stop fighting now and come back to the table. Right now, all this fear and defensive measures is just going to escalate and escalate until fear gets the better of someone. From there... That's the point of no return. We're not past the point of no return yet. We're still here, and no one has fired a shot. I mean, except for those people that fired a missile, but from what I understand, they weren't a country and no one likes them anyway. So why should they matter? Right now, no one has any advantage here. This is the perfect time to get back to the table and hammer out an agreement. Otherwise, if people start shooting or hurting folks, it'll be exponentially harder to come back from that. 
I'm all for regulating this technology. Mainly because it's the only way I'll be able to come home. I really don't want to die. Up here, my options are limited to death by carbon dioxide poisoning, oxygen deprivation, starving, thirst, or the cabin gets breached and I'll get caught in the vacuum of space. Technically, that's also oxygen deprivation, but I'm nitpicking. I can come back down to Earth whenever I like, but if this isn't regulated before then, I'm stuck up here, and the ship is stuck with me. This can't come back down to Earth. Unless, well, um, I get shot down again. Here's something I want you all to see while I'm up here. You can see my home from up here. It's really small, but it's my home. Up here, everything looks really small. Even the planet itself. But out there is stars and planets and other bodies just waiting to be discovered. Resources for our people, probably aliens we can interact with, and some amazing phenomena we can only know of if we actually go there. When you think about it, really, if we allow ourselves to succumb to all this mistrust and fear, we'll be stuck on this small ball of dirt and water we call home, and deny ourselves all the wonder that goes with that. Please, for everyone's sake, come back to the table. You have nothing to lose by talking. Okay, that's my two cents. End transmission. Afterwards, Catherine sends an email to the O5s and Ferris, letting them know that after Albert's speech, she pulled China, the US, and Russia into a secure video call. It seems that they all want to agree with Albert, but can't take the chance to be the first to stand down. The Americans believe that their leverage with her daughter and freezing and intimidating their assets in the US hasn't paid off yet. The Russians are sore that the GOC and the UN found out about the Foundation's trip to Russia, causing a lack of trust, and China won't back down if the others won't. She doesn't believe that Albert's speech accomplished anything. And so an hour and a half later, Albert calls up Macaulay again for an update. Macaulay tells him that they're still waiting to hear back although Albert is incredulous that no one would have said anything about what is probably the most important event in the world. Macaulay tells him that no one wants to be the first to ease up, but no one wants to jump the shark either, so everyone is waiting for someone else to take initiative. Albert dejectedly says that he tried, while Macaulay asks him to please bear with them as they try to speed this up. Albert, however, says that he's had a lot of time to think up here, and this whole time he's been trying to work around him surviving this whole ordeal. But once he treats his life here as non-important, 
all of the math checks out. No one can shoot him down without the chance of the ship coming back to Earth and risking him coming back down. Waiting for him to die and for the ship to fall into a decaying orbit is a waiting game no one wants to drag out, least of all him. That leaves him getting the ship out of orbit and crashing it somewhere, in a way that makes it irrecoverable. The sun is eight light minutes away, so if he cranks up the speed to its theoretical max, it would be there in six minutes. He'd probably die sooner because he'd be hitting all that energy super fast, so he guesses he'd die in five minutes. The ship would probably be destroyed around the same time, so no one would get the drive, no one would get him, no one would have a reason to fight, so there's a better chance of everything de-escalating. Macaulay tells him that just because they haven't come up with a solution yet doesn't mean that there isn't one but Albert responds that that doesn't mean that there is one either. He doesn't want to wait on that Schrodinger's cat any more than they do, and this is the only solution that works. He appreciates everything that Macaulay has tried, and he's glad they talked. The way he sees it, this is all his fault for not thinking everything through when he built the ship. Macaulay asks him if he thinks that this is all penance, but Albert says it's arrogance. He started this whole project because he was too scared to admit that he was just one old guy who builds shit. He thought he was God's gift to humanity, a fix to all of the world's problems and miseries, but this whole situation has been a massive reality check. This isn't a suicide. It's not even a heroic sacrifice. It's just him cleaning up his shit. Macaulay tries to reason with him, saying that he thinks that because he's just one person, his life isn't worth much, but his life is worth just as much as anyone else's. Albert interrupts him, though, saying that their lives are worth just as much as all of the people that this technology could kill, an amount measured in billions. This is the only thing he can do to prevent this, so he's doing it. But he thanks Macaulay for trying, before ending the call. In the final broadcast from the Tachyon Express, Albert is seen drinking from a flask as loud rock music is blaring in the background. He looks to the camera and says that to everyone who might be watching this, he just wanted to say that Shit happens. He then looks out of the window and says, Fuck your vastness. I existed. He proceeds to take another sip from his flask before operating the navigational controls. He is crying and simultaneously singing along with the music as he finishes his pre-flight checks. He takes a single deep breath, says... Engage, and the live stream ends. Afterwards, the junior researcher in charge of the 5392 documentation sends an email to Ferris, saying that the updated version of the document has been completed. Normally, this would have been sent to his immediate superior, Macaulay, but the site doctor put him on leave after everything that happened. 
The final version of 5392 then states that its object class is neutralized, and it's described as a faster-than-light spacecraft created by Albert Maple that was destroyed by its own creator on June 1st, 2024, after 36 hours of total orbital flight. It was capable of speeds of 1.25 times the speed of light, but the creator had boasted a theoretical maximum speed of 1.5 times the speed of light. The nature of how this propulsion was achieved is unknown. When the ship first launched, initial suppression attempts were successful at keeping the incident from the public, but it quickly gathered the attention of multiple governments, space agencies, and private aerospace companies. The incident escalated several times, nearly resulting in armed conflict with the Foundation and several major world governments. To prevent further escalation and potential abuse of his technology, Albert flew the ship into the Earth's sun. So ends the voyage of the Tachyon Express. It's undoubtedly a tragic ending, as the utopian future of Star Trek that Albert envisioned wasn't to come to pass. Perhaps Albert was simply too far ahead of his time, and his dream of interstellar discovery and expansion could happen someday. Or perhaps humanity is inherently filled with the type of strife that will forever prevent such a thing. Either way, in the end, Albert likely made the best decision he could, to save the most lives, as the GOC predicted when this began that destroying the ship would almost certainly be the best case scenario. We'll never learn how exactly the Tachyon Express functioned, just like the organizations and governments never will, but it really doesn't matter. This article certainly isn't as idealistic as Star Trek often is, which is how Albert is first presented, but rather, Albert is brought down by a crushing sense of realism, something often missing in many SCP articles. Good stories aren't good because of them necessarily ending with happiness or success, but rather they're good because of how a person can connect to them. Perhaps humanity will never be the interstellar utopia that Albert wanted it to be, but that doesn't mean we should ever give up our sense of wonder, either.